Before the episode starts, I want to let you know about a discount code that Dr. Chris Masterjohn mentions in the episode. If you'd like to get his Testing Nutritional Status Ultimate Cheat Sheet, use the coupon code GARY, that's G-A-R-Y, at checkout, and you'll get a nice discount on the cheat sheet. Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Chris has a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut. He's also been a postdoctoral research associate and was an assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College until 2016. He now does his own consultancy um, and produces nutritional information on his website, YouTube channel, and has his podcast called Mastering Nutrition. Chris, thanks for coming on for an episode for today. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I, I realized I was looking, I got to interview you back in 2017 when we were talking about um, your your issue with mold then, and you've been up to a lot oh, of things. Right. Yeah, so how, how are you doing actually before we get into vitamin deficiency and testing today? Good. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the, I had a, the biggest problems that I had back then were a really nasty fungal infection an inability to tolerate my workouts and some neurological problems that were when they were at their worst were really, really heavy twitching of big muscle groups. And, um, I would say I, the fungal infection is, uh, gone. Um, I do notice like one of the things that helped me fully recover from it was regular tanning and, um, not really to get tan, but just like sub tanning use of tanning beds for the antimicrobial properties, of the UV light. And I do keep up with that. And I will notice if I don't keep up with it over the course of three or four weeks, I'll notice like a little bit of itching in the areas that were worst when I had the fungal infection. But I mean, like on a scale of zero to a hundred, I've probably brought it down to like one or something like that. Wow. Um, and then the neurological problems are pretty much gone, but it was a, it was a very long path and they're probably down from like on a scale of one to hundred, they're probably down to like three or something. So, um, after it was bad twitching, like after that, it was like paresthesias on my face, like a, just feeling like something was like kind of crawling around in my skin right here and here. And that's gone from being always there and strong to like, every once in a while it comes back a little bit. So it's not like a hundred percent gone, but it's like 99% gone. Um, and then the workout thing is pretty much entirely under control. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, I feel like my, I feel like one of probably one of the things with aging is like cumulative assaults of things that we mostly recover from, you know, like I feel like every time, I get some new health problem, I get it to 97% go away. But then over time, this is like one or 2% plus one or 2% plus one or 2%. Like eventually when I'm 90, I'm going to be unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're feeling so much better. And I mean, even in that talk you did then, you were talking about testing and, and all that urine testing and how you figured out stuff and monitored. And that's a part of what we're going to get in today. Um, <clears throat> so, we're going to be talking about how to test for micronutrients and look for deficiencies and, um, and uh, how to figure this stuff out because it can be so complicated. So I'd like to ask you then, um, how would you define a micronutrient deficiency like a vitamin or a mineral? Well, the simplest way to define it is that you don't have enough compared to what you should have. If you look at how those terms are used in the scientific literature, uh, or in academic discussions, you'll often see distinctions made between classically understood deficiencies that have a specific set of signs and symptoms that are then differentiated from suboptimal status of some sort or another. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily that useful to get into those distinctions for most people most of the time. I think it's more useful to just 
define a deficiency as not having enough of something because either way, the action plan is going to be to get more of that thing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this kind of leads me into the question of lab tests where they use reference ranges and are they are they the best way of saying deficiency because some people go but you know the lab test will just basically say that i've i'm not going to get rickets for example um i've just got i'm getting enough of that like an rda in a way or is it is it that yeah those reference ranges that you get from the lab test are the the best ranges or should i be trying to go over them yeah um there's a there's you you packed in a couple concepts there and let me back up one. So you mentioned the RDA. I think yeah. it's a misconception that the RDA is just meant to uh, ensure that you don't get a severe clinical deficiency of something. So the RDA is designed. Well, first of all, most of the RDAs are pretty old. So like um, the RDAs for almost everything that we have now, with the exception of vitamin D and calcium probably almost everything is comes from like the late nineties, early two thousands era. So it's all, you know, 20 years out of date, but, um, what they do when they have the art, when they make the RDA is they look at the available evidence and they try to figure out what is the most sensitive indicator of optimal health. And then they make the RDA based on fairly conservative criteria of interpreting that. Um, but the goal is to set a value that will, ensure at a population level that 97.5% of people are getting enough. And the data are usually very limited in the sense that most of the RDAs, what they, the way they do it is they try to say like, what is the average person's requirement in order to prevent whatever is the most sensitive indicator of their optimal health failing? And then they say, what's the variation around that mean, around that average? Almost all the time, they don't know what the variation is. And so they just assume it's 10%. (laughs) And so they say, okay, if um, like in statistics, if you have an average, if you have like a natural normal bell curve of something, then two standard deviations above and below the average is going to cover uh, 95, the middle 95% of the population. And if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about deficiency, uh, if you're talking about having enough, basically like if you cover the needs of up of, um, the curve up to that top point, you're covering the bottom 97, 97.5% of people. And, um, the thing is they don't, they don't know how much variation there is there. So they're just saying like, we'll assume a standard deviation is 10%. So we're going to say the average plus 20% is going to cover 97.5% of the, the, the people. Um, there's a couple, a couple potential flaws with that would be number one, it's all out of date, right? So like if you're looking at the RDA for, all the B vitamins are set in 1998. And so it's like, there's been 20 years that have elapsed since then. There's more science. You could probably update it. There's things like, um, they didn't know what the variation was. So they just kind of made it up in terms of, you know, what's, what's the variation around the average. Um, and then the last, you know, one thing that like, to the extent that you could criticize it as that's, just like it's um, too conservative about how much we need. That's really getting at, um, it's not really the case that they're trying to interpret the evidence based on what will prevent severe deficiency, but it is the case that they're interpreting the evidence on a very conservative basis. So there might be a lot of evidence where you could say, this evidence kind of seems to suggest that we might need um, double that to optimize something, but it, the evidence wasn't really good and or wasn't really strong or rigorous. And so they, they kind of dismissed that and said, well, really the good evidence is down here. Um, you might look at that and say, well, I don't really care about the fact that the evidence isn't that rigorous because if I get double what you're saying of this nutrient, there's no harm to me. And so I'd rather take the maybe this will benefit me, right? So that's, that's one thing. Um, but then the, another thing is that the RDAs aren't made for individual people. 
And I think this is an enormous misconception that people have. The RDA is a public health thing. And public health is based on statistics. It's based on averages, population averages. So what they're saying is that if we tell everyone to eat this way, then on average, 97.5% of people are going to get enough. But the, th- the, the, the problem with that is that there's no way to guarantee that the people who are, you know, if, if there's an average requirement for something, some people need more than the average, some people need less than the average. And yeah, if the population on average is getting that average, then you, you could say, well, that's going to cover everyone, but not really, because there's no way to know if the people that are getting less than the average are the people that need less than the average. Like it could be that all the people that need more than the average are getting less than the average. You, on average, that shouldn't be the case, right? But if you're an individual, you can't really use the RDA to say, this is what I personally need because the RDA doesn't give you any information about whether your needs are above average or below average. And then their assessment of what the variation is around the average is usually just a guess that they pulled out of thin air. It's not even a guess. It's a, we don't know, so we're going to say it's 10%. <laughs> um, and then, and then, um, and then your value system might say like, well, actually, I want to I want to get more than this when it might be helpful, rather than stay real conservative about it. So I think that's a, a better way of characterizing the RDA. Um, but then the lab values is the second part of what you mentioned. The lab values, most of the time, they're not even as good as that. Most of the time, they're a normal range, which basically says we're going to take apparently average, apparently healthy people. And we're going to take the middle 95% of them and say that this is the normal range. Um, sometimes there's more data. So for vitamin D, for example, there's a ton of data that we're built into creating a staggered thing of this is suboptimal, this is putting at your risk of deficiency, this is enough, this is toxic. Um, there, a lot of data went into that, but very frequently... For the nutrients, we do not have that kind of data. And the lab range really just is a normal range where it's basically like, and it's not even just nutrients. There's many lab testing where it's just based on a normal range. And the the idea is like, yes, it would be better to have the data to say, we want you to be here to optimize whatever. But if you don't have that data, the useful thing about making a normal range is if you had a bunch of patients coming in with a bunch of problems and you can take 20 things that you can measure in their blood and you don't really know what's going on, if in one person, one thing is very abnormal and everything else is normal, then that's a very big clue that that, that you should be looking at that thing. Um, and it gives you like a lot of information. It's sort of like, um, you know, just general screening of, uh, lots of things to give you some probabilistic indicator of what you should be paying attention to, right? So it makes sense there. But what we want to do when we can, when we have the data for a nutrient, is say, if I take someone who apparently is not suffering from any deficiency, and I start decreasing the amount of this nutrient in their diet, what happens to them? And when that thing is happening, what are the markers that change that indicate the lack of that nutrient, which ones respond best to the to me taking that nutrient out of their diet, which ones respond best in a way that strongly correlates with the appearance of problems, signs and symptoms of deficiency, right? So like plasma zinc was characterized this way. We take a bunch of college students, we lock them in a dorm, we give them a zinc deficient diet. What's the first thing that bad that happens? patches of dry skin in most of them. Next thing is they get a sore throat, et cetera, et cetera. Just keep measuring their plasma zinc and see where is the plasma zinc value that corresponds to the first patches of dry skin. And so, and then you put the zinc back in the diet, watch the problems go away, watch the plasma zinc go away. Does the point at the plot where the plasma zinc comes back to X value, um, you know, what is that point that corresponds to patches of dry skin first coming on? What's the point that corresponds to those problems going away? And so these depletion repletion studies are basically the gold standard for defining, number one, what is a good test of nutritional status? And number two, what are the values that we have for that? So the reality is that 
Sometimes we have really good data on that and sometimes we don't. And so when we have good data, you follow the data. And when we don't have good data, you follow the lab's normal range because there's nothing else to follow. So those depletion-repletion studies, are they quite common across most of the vitamins and minerals or is they've only been done on a select few? It's quite common to believe that we should have them. Um, it's not as common to actually have them. So um, I... You know, there were there was uh, there was a great series of meta analyses that came out uh, sometime in the last decade. I don't remember the exact year, but they were they were basically trying to collect all the markers of nutritional status for all those things, and they all got published as a supplement in one of the journals. I can um, I can give you the link to put in the show notes to to th- this if you want. Um, but basically they, they kind of stopped short of characterizing all the nutrients because like a lot of the nutrients, they just didn't have those studies. So it's funny because it looks like it was a comprehensive effort, but they just did it for like seven of the essential vitamins and minerals, you know? Um, and so, and, and I think it's, it's worse than that because in some of the cases where we do have depletion repletion studies, they really only go as far as saying, this marker responded best to these things. And they don't go as far as saying this marker, when it gets to this value, indicates that you're this much on the way to a deficiency. You know, so like for copper, for example, we have very good data that serum copper is the most responsive to depletion repletion studies. But we don't have good data saying the most sensitive indicator of copper deficiency is neutropenia, which is neutrophils going below the, the normal range in your blood results in a complete blood count. Um, I do believe that's one of the most sensitive indicators based on what I've seen. But what we don't have is information that says when your serum copper gets to X, this is when your neutrophil values first start falling. And when your serum copper gets to Y, this is when your neutrophils first go out of the reference range. And when your serum copper gets to this, this is when you start having clinical symptoms. What I've seen in some of the clients that I've worked with is that when people start shifting their diet in a way that decreases the copper status or the copper amount in their foods and their copper values go down to even the bottom quintile of the reference range, they start seeing their neutrophils drop. And then they can reshift their foods to emphasize copper again. Their copper goes back up into the middle of the reference range and the neutrophils go back up. So I'm very suspicious that the bottom third of the reference range for serum copper is a place that you want to avoid. Um, but there's, there isn't good data from depletion-repletion studies for that. Whereas there is good data at the bottom of the reference range for zinc is a place where you that you want to avoid. And to be honest, I don't really know why the the range for most laboratories tends to go down into the fifties for zinc. That's sort of like, if you're in the, you really want to be, you really don't want to be in the seventies for zinc. And you're probably going to start having like actual signs and symptoms such as patches of dry skin or problem, you know, your throat being sore in the middle, out of nowhere. Um, When you're in the, even in the seventies, when you're in the fifties, you're, in a very bad place. And so I don't know why that's the bottom of the reference range in most uh, labs for plasma zinc. Um, so it's probably the same for copper and zinc. It's just that we have better depletion repletion studies for zinc and we don't have them for copper. And so just listening to this, it, I mean, again, this is how complicated it can be when you're having all this testing going, oh, I don't know, is this good data, bad data? Should I be in this range? Shouldn't I be in this range? And and that's why you ended up creating a cheat sheet about understanding all these values, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, I have a, I have what is essentially, um, you could think of it as an ebook, but I think of it more as a uh, system for managing, for assessing and managing nutritional status. I call it testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. The origin of that was that I was doing podcast episodes that were real deep dives into this topic for each nutrient. And, um, you know, so I just review all of the research on selenium and see which markers are the best markers of selenium status. What's the best value of that? Why? And cover the foods and supplements and every, you know, everything that you could possibly think of for that. And, um, 
someone came to me and said, could you like take all the values and make a one page PDF out of it? Because it's a real pain in the butt to go looking through your podcast transcripts and try to find this information. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I start doing that. And then I'm like, man, I can't even find what I said was the right value for plasma selenium, you know? Um, and so as I started putting that together, I realized that you can't turn it into a one-page PDF because that gives you the idea, the misleading idea that you can use the reference ranges, be they the optimal ones or the normal ones or whatever. It gives you the false idea that you can just use those ranges as your conclusive knowledge about what that person person should be doing and you can't. So the thing is, even like take, take the concept of the RDA that we talked about before. This idea that you take the estimated average requirement and then you assess the variation around that requirement and you, you don't know it usually, so you assume some variation in it um, to set some limit. Well, if you take the same idea for, um, let's say, vitamin A, we know that when vitamin A levels on average get to X, people start failing a dark adaptation test, which means that the, if you lock them in a dark place where their eyes should be maximally sensitive to light, and then you see how dim is the speck of, what's the dimmest speck of light that they're able to detect, um, they start failing that test, meaning they have trouble seeing it at night, which would translate to bad night vision on a practical level when their serum vitamin A levels get to a, to a certain cutoff. So they take that cutoff as a laboratory reference range, but probably that cutoff is an average around which there's variation. And so for you, you might need your serum vitamin A levels to be higher than that in order to um, be free of that problem, right? And so because there's a lot of individual var variability, and it might not just be an intrinsic property of you, it might be other contextual factors that, you know, when your diet, when your diet's really high in zinc, the level that you need to prevent deficiency is, is one level. When your diet's low in zinc, it's a different level and so on. Um, so really it's a, it's a probability issue. If you're in the middle of the vitamin A reference range, then you probably don't need more vitamin A. But if you're in the bottom 20%, you know, maybe you do, right? And so you have to look at the other pieces of data, like, are you eating vitamin A? So I, if you're not eating red, orange, yellow, or green vegetables, you're not eating liver, you're not eating cod, cod liver oil, you're not eating butter, and you're not eating eggs, um, I'm pretty sure that you're not getting any vitamin A. But um, maybe you are eating red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables. You are eating dairy and you are eating eggs, but you're not eating liver and cod liver oil. Well, depending on your genetics and health status and your ability to get vitamin A from plant foods, the probability might still be fairly high that you're deficient in vitamin A. Um, so that's going to be a huge factor in my assessment. And then finally, like, do you have bad night vision? And if you do, do you also have dry eyes? And if you do, do you also have problems with your circadian rhythm? And if you do, do you also have these funny bumps of funny bumps on the back of your elbows or whatever, you know, those potential signs and symptoms of vitamin A deficiency all affect that probability judgment. So if your serum vitamin A is 30% into the bottom of the reference range, and yet you have all the signs and symptoms of vitamin A deficiency in one constellation, and your diet is poor in vitamin A, it's, it's far more reasonable to think you are vitamin deficient than you're not, regardless of your serum vitamin A levels. And if you start improving your vitamin A intake and all those problems go away, then that's conclusive evidence that you were vitamin A deficient. Because you did a targeted intervention on the basis of improving your vitamin A status. You've improved your vitamin A status and all the problems went away. And if you show that the serum vitamin A level went up into the middle of the reference range, then even though it was never low, overall, the net evidence there is very strongly in favor of the fact that you were vitamin A deficient, you fixed a vitamin A deficiency. And what it, what it maybe even is, is that it's valuable for you to have tested before and after serum vitamin A because maybe for you, you say, when my serum vitamin A drops below Y, even though Y is above the bottom of the reference range, um, then I'm vitamin A deficient, 
even though for that guy over there, his has to drop to X, which is the bottom of the reference range for him to be deficient, right? So you, you really don't have a system if you only have one of those legs of evidence. You need the laboratory evidence about what is going on inside the body. It's helpful to also have some genetic information about what is predisposed to happen in the body. You can kind of consider them on the same leg of evidence. That's like what could go on, what is going on inside the body. Um, you need the dietary information or in some cases, like sunlight affects vitamin D status. So you need diet and lifestyle information about um, about what you are probably getting relative to what you need. And you need signs and symptoms to tell you, you know, on on an experiential basis, what's actually happening. So lab data gives you objective information about what's happening in the inside mechanics. Signs and symptoms gives you sub, um, it could be subjective or objective, depending on what, you know, there's some things that you can measure, but it's more of a one-on-one experiential view of how is this affecting my body in the ways that matter. And you take that together and you make a probability judgment of what you should, what is the most likely thing that you should do? And then you do that thing, and then you have a way of testing how well that is working. And if it's working well, you keep doing it until the evidence suggests that you can you know, relax a little bit. If it's not working well, you got to go back to the drawing board, look at the next most probable thing, and try to work on that. And so that's really how you have to approach it. And so then the question became, what's the best way to turn that into the closest approximation of a one-page PDF. <laughs> and what I decided that was, was a 78-page 70, PDF that is designed to reduce the amount of pages you need to read to like five of them. And so in the cheat sheet, there's one page that has a comprehend that has like, if you were to do a comprehensive um, laboratory analysis, then like how, you know, put those on one page. But then there's also doing a comprehensive laboratory analysis might run you a couple thousand dollars. So if time is, if uh, money is limiting, what should your approach be? Um, If time is limiting, what should your approach be? And so there's a page or two introducing you to decide, A, should I do this comprehensively or should I do it in a way that saves time or should I do it in a way that saves money? And then B, depending on which of those choices I took, what's the minimal amount like the minimal vi- minimum viable amount of data I have to have to get somewhere. And then part C is like, okay, I have my data. Tell me what to do with it. And so there's an algorithmic system to say, if this is off, go read this part. If this is off, go read this part. And then whatever part you read, that gives you an action plan and a way to see if it's working. And so I've tried to make it as, as cheat sheet-like as I could by system systematizing it in that way. And that's why I call it the ultimate cheat sheet. So the cheat sheet part of it is that it's reduced to the minimum amount you need to do to to get somewhere and to carry out an action plan and monitor the efficacy of that action plan. The ultimate part of it is that actually it opens up this world of, you know, 78 pages of cliff notes of everything important that you could possibly need to read if you wanted to or needed to. And I can imagine the usefulness too if any listeners are trying to solve a health problem and they see a functional medicine doctor who may do a lot more tests beyond just your typical blood tests. And so it would be empowering to also use this information to go, okay, um, I, I'd like to have a discussion, like, you know, is this in the right place for me? Or um, yeah, yeah. Just, just to empower them with that discussion point. Yeah. And so I think you brought up a good point there about um, – before and after testing, because a lot of people say, well, use nutrition as an example here, they're going to adopt a certain way of eating to solve a problem. Um, I'm trying to think of, of usefulness that there could be value that you would do a basic nutritional assessment before you adopt a way of eating, and then maybe X time frame going into it, you would you would do another one to see, is this the right diet for you maybe? Or are you eating this, the foods that you should be eating? Because, uh, you know, that comes up time and time again when someone eats a certain way, be it low carbohydrate, ketogenic, carnivore, something. They're gonna, you know, the question is, aren't you deficient in X? 
And I guess this is where you, they, you could use the information, go, well, I can do, I know now, um, I can test myself and see am I or aren't I, but if I, and I, I can use before and after testing to see that too. Yeah, I mean, it, it rarely gives you much insight to test something once because um, you don't know how it got there or where it's going. So you definitely would benefit from having before and after testing on anything that matters to you. The thing is, this testing costs a lot of money, right? So the average person is not going to run comprehensive screenings every three or four months. It's just cost prohibitive for mm-hmm. most people. Some people might. And they're certainly, you know, like very successful entrepreneurs who have all the money and, and are almost like obsessively focused on how to optimize their performance. Um, you know, for them, like it, it makes sense, but for the average person, you want to be kind of conservative on what you on what you do. So if you have enough money to do comprehensive screening initially, you use that to see what needs work. And then the things that you follow up are the things that needed work. You know, so you you see like, you know, out of 25 things I looked at, it was just my iron that was off. And so you engage a strategy to try to fix that and then you retest the iron and you retest the iron as frequently as you would need to retest it to ensure that you've fixed it. I think generally four to eight weeks would be a good retest time, but it depends on how high priority it is too. So like I've had some people who are severely zinc deficient and I suggest that they measure their plasma zinc every two weeks at first because we're trying to figure out what dose of zinc that they need and what frequency of taking it that will get their plasma zinc up into the normal range because we want to keep it there for a while and make sure that their tissues are being repleted over time. Um, quite often when you get something into the range, and this is a, an easily neglected point, quite often when you get something back into the normal range from a deficiency state, it indicates not that you fixed the problem, but that you're fixing the problem. And so if in that case where it's a very severe problem, a lot of symptoms, we want to make sure we have the right approach very fast, we might measure it every two weeks for a little while until we're sure we're sure that we're keeping it in that range and then you know drop the frequency just to every once in a while make sure that it's still there. Um, if money is very limiting, you can skip the comprehensive screening and just go on the, the probability that you need to work on something based on your dietary and lifestyle analysis and based on your signs and symptoms. And then you retest or you test something only when it would make a difference in a, in a critical action that you would take. So there might be some things where you have to make a decision about what to do, but it's not particularly high risk to do one versus the other. Um, and then maybe you don't test something there. You just try it and see what happens. But maybe doing something is fairly high risk. Like a maybe you need... Um, you know, high doses of a certain, maybe you need high doses of vitamin A, which could be toxic for some people. Um, and so you don't, you don't want to take 50,000 IU of vitamin A uh, if, you, if you don't know what your levels are, but you might need to in some circumstances. And so because it's a fairly high risk thing to do, you should do that testing. Or there could be other things where it could literally make the difference in opposites. So for your iron, There are some problems like fatigue, for example, that might come with anemia from iron deficiency. It might also come from iron overload because of the the toxic effects of the excess iron. So if that's the case, you want to test because it literally makes the difference between you doing two opposite things to fix the same problem. And if you don't do the testing, you could run into the situation where... um, you're making it worse and you don't know whether your your solution to that is to back off or to double down. And one example that I like to use as a thought experiment is the example of a, a premenopausal woman with the genetics for hemochromatosis. 
So her genetics favor her suffering from iron overload, but a heavy menstrual flow in her younger years is going to predispose her to iron deficiency. So she could have a tendency to anemia throughout much of her life from the heavy menstrual flow. But then she goes through menopause or she has amenorrhea for some other reason, um, you know, her exercise or her diet or whatever, um, or she goes on birth control and she stops menstruating for, you know, a very long time or something like that. If she stops menstruating or has a light enough flow for a long enough time, then she'll lose the tendency to anemia and her genetic tendency to hemochromatosis, the opposite problem, will start to emerge. So imagine this woman who learns from experience, without testing anything, but just learns from experience that when she eats a lot of red meat, when she feels tired, she starts feeling better and more energetic. Now imagine that she has so much experience with this that over the course of you know, decades, she's convinced that whenever she feels run down, she should eat more red meat. She stops menstruating for quite a while, or she has a light flow for quite a while. And her tendency reverses now to where she's no longer a tendency to be anemic, but now she has a tendency to iron overload. She starts to feel fatigued, but it's because her iron's been building up. So she says, ah, I need to eat more red meat. She starts to feel more fatigued. She has 30 years of experience knowing that whenever she feels fatigued, she should eat more red meat. So she doubles down on that. She starts to feel more fatigued. She starts tripling down on that. She starts to feel worse and worse. And maybe at some point she has she's driven to start reading everything she can about why she might be feeling worse. Or maybe she talks to a knowledgeable doctor who says, we should test your iron levels. Or you know, maybe there's some way out of that. But you can see someone getting stuck in that rut for a very long time because iron testing would have made the difference between doing two opposite things but the bias of prior experience made this person double and triple down on the opposite, the thing that, that she sh- thinks she should have been taking out was the thing that she kept putting in and doubling down and tripling down on that wrong strategy because of the lack of testing. Um, so knowing, what, you know, knowing which are the cases where you might expect the testing to make the difference between opposite decisions is very important. And um, you know, so for some, for so for someone with limited money, you do the testing when you need to, and um, and that and that would be a great example of when you need to do the testing. Yeah, again, you know, that's I, I think there's a point where you could figure it out yourself, but there's also going to come a point where you you need that outside help. I mean, that would be a classic case where you have 30 years of experience going. I felt better, but now I just, I'm so confused. Why do I, why is it not fixing? What's going on with me? Um, and what's your experience then with when, so, when you find someone who falls into um, one of these deficiency ranges of the question of just food fixing the problem or do you need a supplement? That's going to depend on a few things. One of them is going to be how bad is the deficiency and is the cause of the deficiency poor dietary choices or is it poor absorption or something else that's not directly impacted by diet? That's going to be one thing. The other thing is going to be compliance because it may be the case that there's a wonderful way to fix this with food, but the foods that you'd have to eat are just not something that someone can develop a good habit around. Um, And then there are some cases where um, there are some cases where the form in food versus supplements really makes a difference where the person would be a lot better off getting it with food from food if they could, um, but you still come back to the question of whether they will. So I think those are the major factors that go into that decision. Um, but like to give an example of a case where food often is not going to cut it, you could have a case of zinc deficiency because of a history of chronic diarrhea. And so much zinc circulates in the bile and you can lose bile when you have diarrhea that you can have chronic zinc loss uh, that gets very, very bad. Um, You could fix that with food or supplements, but it's going to be hard to get enough zinc to fix it fast 
And if the digestive problems are continuing, you might need a higher dose than you'd otherwise get from food. If you were going to do it from food, some of the foods that are highest may or may not be foods that the person's going to eat. So for example, oysters would be the best thing for zinc. The best thing would be to eat like one or two oysters every day or to eat one or two oysters three times a day. Because you can't, you can't absorb the, the zinc that you get from eating like, four, you know, 100 grams of oysters at once. So eating one or two oysters three times a day would be a great way to get that zinc in. But a lot of people would find that to be too much of a pain to work out. Um, and so they'd be left with like beef and cheese, which a lot, you know, a lot more people would eat a lot of beef and cheese than would eat oysters three times a day. Um, but that might not be enough zinc because there's just, you have to eat a lot more and there's less in it. So that might be an issue. And then there are rare defects in zinc transporters that would require you to get higher doses than what you could get from food. And that wouldn't be the norm, but that would be an example of a case where you just have to say, look, food isn't, food isn't working here. Um, we need, we need to supplement. And there are also cases where over the long term, you can get so depleted in something that fixing the deficiency might require doses that are beyond what you could get from food. A good example of that is pantothenic acid. In pantothenic acid, um, the data seem to indicate that although we tend to eat about five milligrams a day, we have stored in our bodies somewhere between four and 10 grams and that it's possible for someone to run grams deficient and need grams per day to get their levels back up in a reasonable amount of time. And one interesting example of this is in teenagers with acne, there's a, a, a hypothesis that the reason teenagers become more vulnerable to acne is because the increased synthesis of sex hormones requires far higher amounts of B5. And so they run, they, teenagers on average are just grams below where they should be for body stores of B5. But the symptoms are not, the stores are not extra B5. They're B5 that needs to be there for your normal function. And so the fact that you only have, that you have, let's say it's, you have seven grams of B5 in your body instead of 10 grams. That doesn't mean that you have seven grams extra until you run out. That means that you're 30% below your operating capacity. And in order to get back up to your minimum op, your minimum operating capacity of B5, you need the extra, you need to get those extra three grams in. And so the only way to do that rapidly is to get several grams a day, assume half of it's absorbed, half of that is retained, and take a week to get up to get that level up there. Um, Whereas if you try to get, if you try from food to say like, look, you're only getting three milligrams from food. You could get this up to seven or eight if you use nutritional yeast and liver. Um, you might need several hundred times more than that to fix that problem in a reasonable time frame. Mm -hmm. And so are there any foods that you could consider like a multivitamin that probably would cover <clears throat> most of your nutritional needs? Yeah, the best multivitamin would be um, one oyster a day, one clam a day, uh, a half an ounce to an ounce of liver per day, and three tablespoons of nutritional yeast per day. That would cover most of your nutritional bases. You'd still need to get calcium. Calcium is, you kind of you need to eat calcium-rich foods in bulk to get calcium. Um, what else would you be missing? You'd still need more potassium. You need to eat potassium in, in bulk, in potassium-rich foods to get enough potassium. Um, but with a few exceptions like that, you'd be hitting most of your bases. Okay. Yeah, because um, I'm guessing, again, people want to try use food as you know primary medicine for everything. So I, th I think it'd be nice that they go, oh, okay, so that's, that's probably going to cover most bases. Yeah, you, you, would, you also would not be getting enough folate and although you'd be getting a lot of folate from the liver, you wouldn't be getting all the folate that you would need. Um, and pasture-raised egg yolks and sprouted legumes 
in even one serving would probably hit the rest of those bases there. So, you know, a lot of people listening to the show tend to follow more of a low carbohydrate way of eating. Would yep. you say that you've seen any type of deficiencies when people eat that kind of way or a ketogenic kind of way? Um, is there something that they maybe need to look out for more signs or symptoms? I think a lot of that is, especially with keto, a lot of that is highly dependent on the degree to which people are, are avoiding or seeking out protein. So in keto, there's a lot of, there's kind of like a faction that says that you should eat low protein because that'll help maximize your ketones. And then there's like another faction that says, no, you should just get all your protein needs. You don't need to maximize it. You don't need your ketones to be like four millimolar. Um, your ketones will be high enough. Um, or you shouldn't, or there's some people who like eat keto, um, but then say, don't even track your ketones, just, you know, eat more or less keto, get enough protein and be done with it. So I think that's going to make a huge difference because there's a lot of nutrients that if you ate several servings of meat per day, you would get plenty of, there's a lot of B vitamins, for example, that would be in that meat. Even potassium is, um, in the lean parts of protein, of protein-rich foods, you are getting quite a bit of potassium, especially if you cook it in a way that you don't let the juices run out and lose them. Like meat, you'll lose half the potassium if you cook it in a pan and throw the juices out. If you conserve those juices, um, you're getting a lot of potassium from that. So I think that if you're, if you're eating low-protein, high-fat, um, instead of low-carb, moderate-protein, moderate-fat, then I think you're going to be a lot more vulnerable to running low on a lot of nutrients. And um, a lot of the B vitamins show up, uh, particularly if you're mostly eating fat, like most of the, most nutrient, fat's not high in very many nutrients at all. Like there's a handful that fat can contain, um, but you know, like none of the B vitamins are in fat, for example. And um and so I think if you are eating low carb or keto, getting like a gram of protein per pound of body weight is going from natural foods is a great way to ensure against a lot of nutrient deficiencies, just because that's giving you a sufficient quantity of the protein rich foods that would have those nutrients. Um, keto does tend to cause you to lose to need more electrolytes, especially salt and potassium, and either supplementing with those or just seeking out low carbohydrate, high potassium foods. And there are there, it's fairly easy to meet your potassium requirements on keto. I mean, if you like, if you eat watercress, you could get you know gr many grams of potassium per, per day on less than twenty grams net carbs. Um, and when you do that, you're going to inadvertently ensure a high intake of a lot of other nutrients too, because once you start eating low carbohydrate vegetables, you're sort of opening up this whole, unlocking this world of vitamins and minerals that are found in very high amounts in those vegetables. So I think eating, I think eating, I don't think eating a high fat diet necessarily puts you in problems, but but um, eating a eating a high fat diet and thinking you're getting all your nutrients from that fat, instead of making that fat a calorie complement to protein rich foods and low carbohydrate vegetables, um, I think that's going to put you at risk of a lot of nutrient deficiencies. And any concern for toxicity? So the other spectrum. You mean specifically with low carbohydrate keto? Yeah. Ever come across any anything like that? Yeah, uh, not really. Um, I don't think so. I mean, there there are certainly there are things you could get toxic levels of from food, and you could get them on low carbohydrate or keto diets, but none that I can think of that you would get because you were eating low carbohydrate keto. Like so, like if you eat too much liver, you're going to be vulnerable to vitamin A toxicity and copper toxicity, and you can eat too much liver on a keto diet. 
but you're not eating too much liver because you ate a keto diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, I would assume deficiencies are more common than toxicities when it comes to foods, whereas you make you you're more prone to toxicity yeah. issues with supplementation. Yeah, I th I would totally agree with that. I, deficient uh, toxicity is not impossible from food, but it's it's improbable with food compared to the probability of toxicity with supplements and compared to the probability of deficiencies with poor food choices. Yeah, I can think of a funny thing, you know, when people eat too many carrots <laughs> and uh, and you may get a visible ch change in your skin color. Yeah, but you're unlikely to have clinical symptoms of a severe problem because of carrot toxicity. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I thought that was just uh, an interesting although, thing. Although it, uh, beta carotene at doses that are three or four times what you could get on a diet that was very rich in carotenoid-rich foods um, can cause its own profile of toxicity. And so I would not juice carrots to try to consume like five times more carrots than you could ever force into your stomach with chewing food. Good point. Well, Chris, I think we've covered a lot of great topics there about, um, and, and as you said, you know, you had to make a gigantic PDF because there's no ways we could cover every single kind of vitamin and mineral here. I could ask you about vitamin D, magnesium, you know, the whole shebang. Um, there's just too much. Um, but I think that I think you gave such a nice overview and explanation of just guidance on how people can start. And again, as you said, you know, depending on your monetary situation, your time situation, your health situation, um, just give you give you the options. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. If anyone wants to um, ex find out more about this or um, to follow you or even to consult with you, do you, are there any specific links that you'd recommend? Uh, yeah, all my stuff is at chrismasterjohnphd.com. Um, and I'm at Chris Master John on social media. So I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Do a little bit on Snapchat, but not too much. Um, so that's where to find my stuff. Uh, right now, my, I, my consultations are all booked up. So um, you can say hi on those social media platforms and you can follow my work there. I do have for your audience, if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biohackerslab, um, you can, I'm giving your audience 20% off the testing nutritional status cheat sheet. And, um, I also have a cool vitamins and minerals 101 course going on. That is a free 30 day course on each nutrient. And we can put links to that in your show notes for people too. I definitely will do that. So, and again, thank you so much for offering that uh, discount for everyone there, Chris. And, um, I'll share that too in the show notes and, and it was a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be here, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.